Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. connected. Stay connected. Oh, hello Lex, how are you? Very well, thank you. <laughs> Very well, Lex Marinos and I. <laughs> I'm Patricia Ramflett. We are hosting Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. What a cracker of a show we have today, Lex. Yes, indeed, Patricia. On the show today, we're talking about the media portrayal of ageing with Natasha Ginovan. Mm, which is not always positive. Not always. No. And Jeff's Cafe is, oh, it's reopened. It has. It's reopened, got every tick of approval that there could be. Oh, Lachlan, yeah. Laurelin and Joanna will take us through that. And one of, I know he's one of your favourites and mine too, Nostalgia Town, Kerry O'Brien. Oh, what a wonderful journalist Kerry O'Brien is. Fabulous. Looking forward to that. And uh, we'll be talking in Money Extra today, Patricia, downsizer benefit with yeah. Mark Bynum. But what do we do with all our junk? What do we do with all our money? <laughs> what money? Ah, <laughs> uh, stepping out. Yeah, who are we stepping out with? Well, Cheryl Small will tell us about the beautiful hunter. Oh, is all of that in this episode of Baby Boomer's Guide to Life of the 21st Century? As I said, it's a cracker. Well, let's get started. Okay. We've got a great guest today, as always. Her name is Natasha Ginovan, and she's a research fellow with the UNSW School of Psychology and an associate investigator with the Aging Futures Institute and the Centre of Excellence in Popular Aging Research, known as CPAR. Her focus is on investigating implicit and cultural attitudes to ageing. Her research includes the lived experience of ageing and dementia and ageing in marginalised populations, including ageing prisoners. Her current research is focusing on how age stereotypes can act as barriers to enhanced well-being of both younger and older people. And today our theme is the media portrayal of ageing in Australia. A big welcome to you, Natasha. Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, Natasha. Natasha, this is a, a great subject. Um, how did you become interested in, and do what you're doing? Uh, yes, so I think around my 30s I was um, looking for something else. My previous line of work was in design. I uh, was in fashion actually. And then I just, um, after I had my first child, I needed something else. I was interested in psychology, so I went back and studied psychology and the very first project that I did was exploring implicit attitudes to ageing and from there I, I just became sort of hooked and I've been researching that topic for the next, you know, I researched that topic for the next couple of decades and <laughs> still going. It's a terrific area and of course it's one if we all live long enough we will be called aged. So Natasha, what, what, what happens? It, it, it feels a bit like the chicken and the egg. Who makes the decisions about who is seen on television and not? And how are those decisions based on anything other than pure subjectivism? Or is is it backed by, is there research that says people don't want to see old people on TV? 
Is that specific research or is it an assumption by program makers? I would I would say it's more assumptions than research of what people want to see. I think that um, it depends on the type of um, station or, um, you know, commercial or not commercial. I know that literature reviews uh, done of, for example, children's programming even um, showed that only about out of 106 characters of um, cartoon characters, only 2% of them were old and the 2% were portrayed as, um, feeble-minded and sort of cruel and evil and particularly, you know, female cartoon characters. So from a very young age, we've sort of fed this diet of, um, you know, terrible portrayal of um, older people, whether it's cartoons and, you know, children by the time they're school age kind of go into school already knowing stereotypes about, you know, older, older people. Um, and so then, you know, it, it continues to be endorsed with other stereotypes. And it's also just the absence, like, you know, the absence of um, older females. So there's this sort of very narrow range of um, sort of like between the ages of, you know, late teens to 35 that that needs to be like if you're a female, then you'll be cast if you're between 8 and 35 in terms of whether it's movies or programs and even as a news anchor, sort of the male news anchor can age till he's like 70, 75, but the female sort of around 40 gets kind of bumped for the next younger person. So it's also the betrayal, but it's also the absence of, you know, of people if they don't fit whatever the the stereotype or the, the what we prefer to see in in um, in television. I think that it is improving a little bit. Um, I think we touched on this that you know some of the streaming programs now are starting to be more representative of midlife and older, but it's still pervasive. Like that, you know, it's mostly young people. So if you don't sort of see yourself reflected uh, in the media, and then the ones that you do see are in a very negative life, then you're going to internalise that sense of, you know, when I'm older, I'm I'm probably not that worthwhile. So it is a big influence um, from a very young age and it's across the life course that we kind of take in take this in. It does begin at a very early age. I mean, I'm, I don't know who we thank, whether Walt Disney or some other mega <laughs> produ- production company for um, fabulous movies like Cruel, um, 101 or 1001 Dalmatians, and the character was called Cruella de Vil, and it's a woman. And uh, <laughs> we all love the movie, but what a start for kids' minds to – and the terms nag and dragon, they're only ever used for women. You know, you don't hear a man being called a nag or a dragon. Yeah, uh- that's a really great point. And, you know, I, I've, we very rarely hear um, described a man described as mutton dressed up as lamb either. Natasha, is there any any research between the, the, that shows a correlation between the people making the decisions, i.e. are the decisions being made mainly by middle-aged white men and it's we're pandering to their predilections in media rather than a more general decision-making about what people want to see? 
Look, that could very well be the case. I've not surveyed, um, you know, the the station directors, um, but I but I don't know too many um, women in top positions uh, making those decisions. Um, um, certainly, SBS, I think, you know, by its very nature, tries to include be inclusive, you know, um, across the board. In fact, I was. Um, had the good fortune of being a participating member of the audience for the SBS Insight show on growing older um, quite recently. And that had a like really fantastic um, group of people who were really, you know, busting kind of social expectations of, you know, aging baby boomers who were still enjoying their motorcycle bike riding and, bodybuilding and, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, sort of, you know, destroying those expectations of old um, on this on this show. So it was really great to be a part of. And, um, you know, I think that SBS tries to be inclusive, but I think other, show, other, you know, channels could probably lift their game and, you know, lead by keeping <laughs> more middle-aged and older women in anchor roles and, Mm. you know, casting them in shows as well. And, um, you know, definitely I think there's a huge room for improvement and an opportunity as well because, as as we talked about before, with uh, within the advertising um, world, you know, we need to see more people representing us in, sh- in fiction and in shows, but we also need to see people, um, you know, marketing to us um, who are representative of our age, you know, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. 70s and beyond. And that aren't just about, you know, the stereotypical um, you know, funeral funeral insurance or life insurance. It is interesting. I did see that Insight program. It was great. I watched it twice, actually, because I knew someone on it and um, <laughs> it was very, very interesting. And I, I would have had a ball just being there, observing it all in, in person, but it was fabulous, worth well worth a watch. And ABC, we all love the ABC, but by gee, you know, Lots of, not lots, but I know that I count them. There are more older men and good on them getting roles than there are older women. Would you agree with that, Lex? Well, that's that's traditionally been the the, the issue that, um, you know, it, well, because it, it has a long historical tradition of women weren't even allowed on stage until the 17th century, you know. So in terms of Western theatre traditions, we'd had two two millennia of only men being allowed on stage. Therefore, the number of women's roles to be played by men was reduced. And even now, you see, you know, you'll see a, a character breakdown or a character list. They'll mention all the men first before they get to the women. You know, uh, I mean, it's so it, so you're fighting a long, long tradition there. Where we noticed a change, not surprisingly, is when women were given opportunities to write and direct and produce, then you got roles for women being coming mm. on the forefront. But, uh, you know, until you change that power structure and that imbalance in the power structure, you're not going to get change on the level because it's, it's because men can't think outside of the square. Yeah, and we we've let them do that too. I must admit, you know, we've anyway we're different now. We women look out. Here we come, and I think too that the more we talk about it, the more we tell others about it, um, in, in just a natural, straight ahead way, 
the more they'll realise, yeah, that's very true what they're saying, um, that still men, women, you know, I'm doing high-low <laughs> with my hands. Natasha, in, in the, the research you've done, what were the things that surprised you most? What did you find out that you didn't expect to find out? Or, or did you have a pretty clear idea? Did you work from the results backwards? Or did you go into it with an open mind and thinking, I wonder what this is about? I guess I was most, well, surprised. I mean, I, from, from a grown-up's perspective, I you know, was looking for um, reasons why there was this sort of twin prejudice of ageism and sexism and why that there was always such a much older leading man and, you know, there's many examples of movies and so on. So I was sort of like, oh, that's such a drag. Like why can't they have like the more realistic real-life representation of it's usually the same age partner or a couple of years difference? Why is it always 20 or 30 years difference in Hollywood? But then but then when I sort of started researching it um, and looked at what people who reviewed programs and literature and stuff like that, the, the the thing about that brought it home was from the very early age of even in all the Disney and cartoon um, representation that there was no real positive or realistic role models. And I get that, you know, Disney is kind of cartoon and stuff, but it's, 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 and it's, you know, it's in, it's in our, it's on our shows, it's on our TV and it's not real life. But we, it, you know, we reflect, it reflects back to us through our imagination, like what, what is represented in, in our own life. If we follow shows and follow the narratives, then we kind of go like, you know, that, that, that plays a role. So that really we've been fed from such a young age, this, um, this idea that older people aren't valued. Um, and if you're a female older person, then um, you're just, you know, you're very like you're an old bag, you're an old hag, you play the, the the old witch of the West, you play all these kind of roles. And beyond a certain age, you just, uh, if you're a female and you're older, you're not valued in, in our in our culture. I mean, it is, I think it's it's shifting, but it's it still hasn't made any massive, you know, changes in in shows and programs. Women always say they become invisible as they get older, whether it's being served in a shop or whatever on television, whatever. Um, intergenerational conversation can be tricky at times because, you know, the labels are put on people straight away, oh, lecturing us, and etc. Um, surely there must be value, though, in, in trying to start those conversations, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, um, in my sort of academic and non-academic work, are looking at ways that we can be more age diverse. I have been sort of doing a bit of research um, around what workplaces are doing that well, and there's quite a few studies coming out of Germany that are really doing like experimental and field work around, you know, diverse work groups and how they can perform well together and manage well the age diverse teams younger and older tend to be the most productive you know i mean we, we don't have to think too much about that because we know that if well if they if they cooperated we would take all this like all wheel drive like experiential thinking and deep foundation of knowledge and add that to their new ideas and enthusiasm and everything else that young people bring, and that's a that's a superpower right there. 
it's, and so if we can overcome these sort of like age stereotypes and, and barriers, then imagine what we can do both in the workplace and just, you know, in our society. So there's a little bit of that going on in Europe because you can imagine in Germany they've got these fantastic like automobile um, companies that really have a wealth of like engineers that are like been there 20, 30 years and they're trying to get that to be like corporate knowledge to pass that on but also for the younger and older people to really, you know, work together because of the ageing population as well, right? So it serves many many purposes. Um, but, you know, in age diversity, I think, is a, is a really important thing. And so in my, as I mentioned, in my non-academic work, I also am part of this, the Modern Elder Academy. Um, and the Modern Elder Academy is like um, a, a group that's come out in, in Australia. It's someone who um, is a colleague of mine. She travelled over to the US and went to this world's first Modern Elder Academy and then she's brought it out here to the Blue Mountains. And they sort of um, are running workshops on, you know, age diversity and transformation and sort of encouraging us as a whole to really embrace our, you know, positive aging and to move from the mindset of the learn, earn and retire to this sort of more multi-stage life where we might change careers um, and m- mentor, like a mutual mentoring, you know, relationship with someone younger. Um, and and that sort of is, is a way to sort of like regenerate the next stage of your life and career and all that sort of thing. So there's just all this like really different dynamic things that we can uh, approach this aging journey. It's just that we have been socialized to think that there's this sort of like learn in school, earn and then retire when we get to like 50 or 60, but we're living till 80. So that doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, one of the things that uh, I know is previous uh, studies have shown, particularly in terms of cultural diversity, but it also applies to age and gender diversity, particularly in the business I'm in, which is acting, um, scripts will be very specific in terms of the characters. They'll, get, they'll have character descriptions. They'll give an age range. They'll be very specific about that, except when it gets to generic characters like a doctor or a lawyer or the taxi driver. The moment casting agency doctor, they think young, male, Anglo. Dark hair, no grey hair. <laughs> and and I that's always puzzled me, why that is the default position and how... And I've never known what you need to do to change that. If it's, a, if it's just a doctor, why wouldn't it be a woman? Why is the assumption that it will be a man? Yeah. I mean, I asked the same question. I, there's a, I, I can't remember her name, but I'll have to tell you later. But she's a, she did a great TED Talk about um, she was on a flight and she heard the pilot's voice come over and it was a female, right? And so as a woman, she was like, oh, yeah, girl power, you know, she's a, she's a female pilot. And then she said, for a second, when it got bumpy, she was like, I hope she knows how to drive. And she was thinking, <laughs> and she was thinking why did I think that? Like, I would never think that for a second if we were a male pilot. And, and so, you know, we have to, it's good that we can self-reflect and go, why do we think that way? And I think I would encourage us to, you know, more and more to think that way about stereotypes because, you know, then you can be empowered and own that instead of it owning you, you know? Mm. I, I'm very fascinated by the fact that you've done some work with ageing prisoners. Are all the things we've spoken about, do they 
occur and are they any different in 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 that world yeah i sort of became interested in that when i was completing my you know thesis on culture but then i realized you know when i saw this great program on bbc about aging the aging prisoner population that um you know they're a particularly vulnerable group and the prison system's actually been caught off guard in terms of its capacity to manage the level coming in to the um and i would i would say that you know ageism affects all of us but especially uh vulnerable groups um because you know there's with ageism becomes comes an undervaluing and we know in australia even just from the sheer fact that we've had this royal commission into uh you know, aged care and the many, many issues with the aged care, that ageing is an afterthought because of our attitudes. So if we can become more conscious about our attitudes and we're all ageing and, you know, I sort of say to young people because I sometimes give a lecture on my uh, research around the ageing prisoner population and what I try to say to the students is like, you know, we're all ageing, it's not we live our life and then bump into this thing called age at 60 or 70 it's we're aging from the beginning and it's a life course thing and you guys will probably believe the longest at the moment so you know you you guys probably want to start getting interested in in aging well um and when i say are interested natasha we're very interested yeah Yeah. but it's hard but at the same time it's i mean i just know with my grandkids it's hard to give them a concept of aging it is you know, they 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 live in such an immediate world. The, you know, the idea of next week is a long way away. You know, the, you mm, know the, yeah, the that's absolutely right, over. and I think that's right. And so, from 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 what I'm sort of trying to, I suppose, convey is that just by encouraging and promoting more positive intergenerational interactions outs in the family, but outside the family in a safe communal community spirit sort of activities way, um, whether it's, you know, new workplace teams or mentoring in, you know, schooling um, environments. I think there's some programs that have grandparents coming and reading to kids and things like that. The more that you can do that, it's just by virtue of having positive interactions with older people not so much you know me kind of giving a lecture to young people that they should you know care about aging but more you know at at the younger stages um providing support and positive experiences and that goes a long way because again these ageism is so implicit that it needs to be combated and buffered by these other elements that we can provide along the way Perhaps this sounds a little trite, but I, I know that growing up with pets um, might have helped my reasoning and my thinking about everything and everyone must get old because, you know, you start off with a little kitten or a puppy and before you know it, they're grey around the muzzle and they're getting old dog diseases and old cat diseases and kind of we're the same, you know, that having lots of pets taught me life and death really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having a pet is shown to be like very positive at any stage, but for children, it's showing responsibility, but also showing them that, that life course. Um, and, and, and for older people, um, it's that emotional connection and support as well. 
Gosh, we could, I'd love to, I'm sure Lex would too, we could talk and talk about it, this uh, subject. It's fascinating. It, it belongs to all of us and you've helped us navigate and understand it even more. Thanks, thanks, Natasha. We're getting the wind-up from our young producer who thinks, you know, these couple of old people are just raving on now and, uh, you know, and he's got to go out for a latte and do, you know, and be social very media woke. kind of things. Uh, totally woke, totally woke. And Natasha, it's been terrific. Thanks for your time. It's, uh, Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very Thank much. You You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe, where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. And we've just been listening to that interview with uh, Natasha Ginevan about media portrayal of ageing. Uh, and here in Jeff's Cafe to talk about it, we have Lachlan, who's a Gen Zeta from Sydney. We have Lorellan, who's a Gen Xer from Echuca in Victoria. And we have Joanna, who's a boomer from Balmain. Uh, lovely, lovely to have you all here today. So, look, I'm, I'm going to start with a question to you, Lorella. Is media portrayal of ageing really that negative and is it changing? Mm, it's a really good question. This episode has just been so fascinating to listen to and it actually got me wondering this question myself. And in pondering some of the points that were made, I kind of think that it is still quite negative and um I think that perhaps it's gone a bit backwards, actually. I think when I was a kid, there was plenty of representation of older people um, on TV shows and so forth, um, and I'm not sure that that necessarily happens now. It got me thinking about things like the runway. Like who is who's going out there and presenting clothing for these different demographics? I can't think of one person who's out there promoting an older generation's clothing, baby boomer outfits, like it just it got me thinking, and I don't think it's positive. I think of Apia commercials, and I think of, you know, the nursing home stories in the media. Like it, it's yeah, I'm struggling with this one to really find some positives out there. Yeah, mm. I mean, I I agree, and I think that you know the way in which our world operates is very much on what's hot and what's not hot, and in the media landscape, usually what is becoming a you know more prevalent thing is that if you're young you're hot if you're getting older you're not hot and you know as blunt as that sounds it's definitely what happens because you just look at who's starring in these big movies these television shows which singers or artists are still performing around and getting radio play or attention and you know a lot of the time after you've been in the scene for 10 20 years you're you know, popularity and that kind of dwindles and yeah. you're no longer hot. You've been around too long. You're getting it's stale. So interesting, Lockie, because I was thinking that too and then I was like, oh, you know what, there actually are a lot of older actors in particular that are still out there like, um, you know, Kerri-Ann Kennelly. She's now in theatre. She's 68. You've got Ida Buttrose who just in 2019 took over the ABC. She's 80 years old now. Um you know, there's a whole heap of US, Morgan Freeman, 85, he's still doing movies. Like there are plenty of older people still in the media, but I don't know, I feel like they um, maybe have lived lives where they've had their personal trainers and their people that have been feeding them certain things and 
they still look a particular way that media wants. Like, and no disrespect to anyone, but I feel like there's there's people who are you know older who have a desired appearance that the media you know is happy yes. to project, and there's others that that aren't. I mean, I think you take an example: the Top Gun um, Maverick film. Right. Um, I cannot remember the name of the leading female actress in the original, but I Kelly McGuinness. Kelly McGuinness. Yeah, um, I believe there was a lot of conversation around whether she would come back in the new one because of the way she looks now versus the way Tom Cruise looks now. To me, that's a really interesting thing that Natasha was talking about in the interview. Mm. That this is about age, but it's also about gender. And it's much easier for older male actors or news presenters or whoever it is to continue with a viable career and be seen as attractive and someone who's worth listening to. But for women, it can be really challenging, I think. And, you know, the other thing that really strikes me about this is um, there's an absence of older people in a lot of the media, and I'm thinking about the print media as well here, as well as mm-hmm. movies and TV and stuff. But it's also the way that they're portrayed when you do see older people. You know, they're often, as Natasha was using that example in um, movies of, you know, evil, and I think it was Patty that said, you know, Cruella Deville and things yes. like that. But it's also, you know, there's a thing that people in this research field talk about is like whether people see you as warm or competent. And for young people in the media, because I think they get stereotyped almost just as much, they're often seen as competent but not very warm. Mm. It's taking and they're out there, but they're not necessarily gentle or wise. Whereas for older people, we get sort of seen as lovely and like Nana in the corner looking after the grandchildren and baking the bickies and that's lovely. But we never get seen in the media or very rarely get seen in the media actually doing something useful in the world. You know, there's Ida Butler, sure, but she's such an exception, fabulous exception. Yeah. I read something today that said, um, why is it that only baby boomers are getting older? Like in, when it comes to media portrayal, mm. it's like interesting question, right? Why is that? But then I also wondered, you know, with this perception of negativity in the media around Baby boom, well, baby boomers, or, or even the, the generation before them, and I wondered if it's got something to do with those that talk the loudest get heard the most, and is it is it that there's a particular demographic that just tends to gravitate to being noticed or or getting out there to be heard, and it may be not necessarily a positive message that they are giving, creating stereotypes. I don't know. Do you mean from within the baby boomers? There are loud yes. boomers and, and softer yeah, boomers. And, and it's a rite of passage, Joanna, right? Like I think a lot of people, and myself included, as you get older, you feel like you can talk more about how you're really <laughs> feeling about things and, you know, and maybe that doesn't come across in a positive light for a lot. Of, maybe there's a perception that the people that are being heard are complaining or don't have good things to say or are grumpy. Like maybe that's a legitimate kind of person. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, and it's really hard to have this conversation talking about the media as if it's like one thing because, right. of course, it's not. So you know, there's 
there's the mainstream serious print media and then there's Hollywood cartoons and then there's a whole heap of stuff in between. And I think also on social media it's different. You know, we did some research at the Human Rights Commission last year and the things we found out about mainstream traditional media were quite different to the things that were showing up mm. on social media where during COVID times, say, there was a lot of that OK Boomer and Boomer Remover stuff that wasn't going on in the Sydney Morning Herald. So, yeah. you know, it's it's horses for courses a bit too, isn't it? You know, it depends what you read. And, and it you- does because I think social media is great for this story because, I mean, there's so many users of social media, right, and, and all age ranges seem to be on there now. And when you get on the community pages and you get involved in those kinds of things, there are some really amazing stories of what people are doing, intergenerational, um, but there are good news stories that way, I think. I mean, yeah, social media is definitely, um, you know, a good place to analyse the way people interact, especially, you know, people of different cultures, classes, um, ages, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons why social media does kind of project that thing of if you're loud, you get heard is because, you know, there's some people that use social media that are just there to observe and just take in stuff. There's other people that, I mean, everyone has the ability to engage with what's being put on social media. And those that do will, you know, no matter what, you know, you say they're going to kind of capture what that generation is to everyone else online because they only hear them. They don't hear the other people. That's where stereotypes come from. That's right, yeah. yeah. My, You know, my father-in-law, gosh, I hope he doesn't listen to this, but he gets gets kicked off Facebook all the time because of the bad language and the controversial things that he raises and a very, very old school, non-PC view at life that he's yeah. very happy to publicise. And it's true even in, you know, traditional mainstream media, the media loves to beat up all these stories about one generation versus another generation, you know, the asset-rich baby boomers and the, you know, millennial entitled snowflakes and everybody in between. And it's funny because there's been quite a lot of research done now to say that this is like something the media has made up. When you actually talk to Australians particularly about these things, they're like, this isn't true. Like you're talking about my child or my mother or my sister. We love people of all generations and we get on with them, but the media is always looking for sensationalism and a conflict and pitting one lot against another lot. And I think some people pick up on that and almost buy into it a bit and then play it out down the line. It's that whole thing of if you're told you are something enough times, you start believing it, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Today's episode made me think also about the grey nomads grey nomads and how they're portrayed and it's so sad because they actually get a bad rap in the media too but they're doing amazing things for our country they're creating economies in you know regional areas of Australia that maybe haven't had that before which I find really weird it is because they're mostly having a really good time too out there about as you say they're contributing to the economy Oh, they're not, but they're not paying to be in caravan parks. Yeah. Heaven forbid. <laughs> it's weird. When you start actually looking at what the media is saying, not just reading it, you find the most extraordinary subtext and stuff going on between the lines, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking about, um, you know, what was mentioned earlier about the facts that um, 
voices that haven't been heard traditionally. Um, you know, that's the reason why the media paints certain generations to be one way versus another because there's a lot of voices that are just absent. But I guess, like, interestingly, I feel even though a lot of the media does contribute to this, you know, culture where if you're old, you're you're not in, you're not hot, you're stale, and um, if you're young, you are hot, there are these emerging voices that are given a little more potential to be able to share their stories and I think like in cinema and television you're getting these writers and um, new voices that are coming along and actually showing the nuances that come with aging and come with you know interacting with people of different generations Um, and I feel like that's a exciting new um, opportunity for people to go you know just because you're in your 60s in your 20s whatever it is doesn't mean you're necessarily going to behave this way or you can I think one of the best things about art in general is that you can put yourself in the shoes of another person and you know really understand what it is like to be um, you know totally different to the way you are um, and one like film in particular that stood out to me was this movie called Amour, which is like this film about, um, you know, a couple in their old age who um, are dealing with, um, you know, the end of their lives, basically. One of them has dementia and it's that, you know, really interesting position to be in as a as a partner to, you know, look at the other person and see them kind of withering away but still having that love towards them. And I guess like from my age, I don't really understand that because I'm still, you know, very far away from being in that position. But I feel like having these new voices in culture that are able to tell these stories and communicate that to, you know, different groups of people is really, really important to breaking down the stereotypes that come with, you know, different generations and different ages. And I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's really true. And it's equally true of younger people. You know, we need to see much more range of portrayals of young people, middle-aged people, everybody on the screen, black, white, women, trans, whatever, so that we can see them as a range of individuals, not just one lump called boomer or millennial, you know. And and it's not as if if you unpack these, everybody's going to be lovely and pretty and sweet and all that sort of stuff. There's some really nasty boomers out there and there's some <laughs> really strange middle-aged people or millennials. People, people. But, but the more that we can see a whole range of performances or people on camera or people being written about in the press, the more we can break down some of these generational stereotypes. I just think they're rubbish, really. I agree. I actually just wrote down, like, to your point, I just wrote that it's an impatient world. And I, you know, sort of think like if if there was more of the intergenerational kind of stuff, you know, like we sort of we even talking like this, we tend to be like segregating and, and we're talking about baby boomers in the media. Well, you know, like if we weren't just talking about baby boomers and we we're talking about all of the generations together, would the perception be the same or would it be different? I think it's very easy for one generation to watch another generation and see the things that frustrate you about that. You know, like yeah. I know myself, you know, we'll have um people applying for jobs and they don't understand how to apply online and we have to take our time to talk them through it. And to somebody else that could be, oh, my God, look at them, you know, they, you know, how could they possibly go to work when they don't know how to operate? Like, you know, it's 
But then if we were all together helping each other and being part of the story together, that wouldn't be as obvious or, yeah. Mm. I don't yeah. know. And I'll, I love that story about Amor, Lachlan, but then it still brings me back to the love story is beautiful and, you know, and sure that's a progression in life, but it still comes back to portraying somebody that has dementia. Like why couldn't it be two old people riding around on motorbikes and having a great time and flying <laughs> airplanes and having a love story like that? Like, it, yeah. you know. That still exists. That's true. Yeah. The film I'm going to see next week with Emma Thompson, who hires a gigolo in her, I think she's meant to be in her 50s. Oh, yes. Because she's never had good sex and she wants to. <laughs> um, I think that's a terrific idea for a film and certainly I'm rocking up next week to see how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, look, well, if there's anybody that needs to look to a um, model for how to portray ageing in the media, well, they only need to look at the cafe to see how we portray the generations. We we want to thank you all very much for participating today in in Jeff's Cafe and having a chat and drinking a cuppa. Laurelin from Echuca, thank you, Laurelin. Pleasure, thank you. Lachlan from Sydney, thank you, Lachlan. Thank you, Jeff. And Joanna from Balmain, thank you so much, Joanna. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. And we will all do this one day again soon. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. And we have with us Patricia Kerry O'Brien. Aren't we lucky? Prominent Australian journalist and author. Spending 28 years as a national current affairs television presenter and interviewer, specialising in politics, he's interviewed presidents, prime ministers all around the world. Kerry spent more than 30 years in public broadcasting, appearing on trailblazing ABC Current Affairs programs like This Day Tonight, Four Corners, the first presenter of Late Line. He was also editor and presenter of the National 7.30 Report for 15 years. He's written two books, one on former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, and more recently a memoir on the social and political upheavals he's witnessed in half a century of journalism. Over the decades, he's also built up a strong body of conference work as a speaker, moderator and interviewer, and we're fortunate to have him as an interviewee. Kerry, welcome to the program. Lex, thank you. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, I was born in Brisbane, but we went bush very soon after I was born. Mm. Uh, my father was was a health department bureaucrat who decided that it would help his career if he went on a tour of the country hospitals. He, he was the sort of... He was the hospital secretary, which basically meant he ran the of the hospital board. So he ran in Monto, in uh, central western Queensland. Then we moved wow. to Stanthorpe, down near the border with New South Wales. Then Warwick, and then back to Brisbane when I was seven. So I um, I had a taste of country life as a kid before settling into Brisbane. Were you a, a big family, Kerry? Uh, well, not not by some standards of Irish Catholic families in those days, Lex, but uh, we uh, we were a family of four. Despite the rhythm method, my parents uh, obviously showed great restraint. <laughs> it was a very sort of stable time, I think. It was not long after the war. I mean, I was six days after the Japanese uh, surrendered and three weeks after the, uh, the world's first nuclear bombs. Um, so... My life has uh, has almost exactly mirrored the whole post-war period, which, of course... Mm. Kerry, do you think the Japanese surrendered because of your imminent birth? (laughs) (laughs) 
was his red hair. <laughs> the size of me had a capacity to scare me from the, in my baby days to flex, but I don't think it was quite that bad. When you were in the country, did you enjoy it? I mean, you must have moved from school to school. Well, there was that. There was certainly that. But I certainly enjoyed the, the kind of freedom that came with life in the country, mm. even as a young kid. As I say, we were seven. I was seven when we moved to Brisbane, but I've got a lot of memories um, as a small child. Uh, we, we lived in a in a, um, a house on the hospital grounds, which was just outside Warwick, for instance, and uh, and the railway line ran through about, you know, 100 metres down below our garden. And it was just... We just we just roamed around. In fact, I roamed around too much because I got into terrible trouble wagging it from school. Mm. <laughs> Great life, country yeah, life yeah. in those years, certainly growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Terry, when when you were a kid and adults said to you, what do you want to be when you grow up, did you say a journalist? I didn't have the faintest idea, Rex. I know I was still scratching my head when I left school, to be honest. Mm. Um, I, I know that uh, my father being... Um, being classic, classically of his time and his breed. I mean, uh, the the Irish and and particularly highly valued education. And I, I look so many stories that reflect the difference that an education made in those uh, in those earlier times when um, uh, there was a kind of strong and highly identified working class. And although although Dad actually had an accountancy degree, his whole family ethos was working class and. Uh, and the mindset was working class, but um, but he he was very ambitious for us to have university educations. He wanted my older brother to be a, a doctor, and he wanted me to be a lawyer. My older brother ended up as an academic teaching English, and I ended up as a, a journalist, mm. not not without roaming around mm. looking for a purpose for a while. Can you remember growing your teenage years in Brisbane? Were you quite sort of normal? Did you go to places like Cloudland and those big dances? Did you? Have you ever been accused of being normal? Yes, how dare you? Well, that was the place to go. Yeah. I, um, I went to school at one of the Christian Brothers Colleges in Brisbane and, and I'd, my, you know, my primary education was convents with the, the tender mercies of the, uh, of the nuns. Um, but uh, Look, it was a pretty tough road through the Christian brothers in that, in that era. We had huge classrooms, and the only way that most of the brothers could exert discipline was with the strap. Mm. And uh, and whether it was through boredom or an innate sense of mischief or a death wish, I'm not sure, but I did end up uh, – I, I think I was the undisputed champion of the strap through mm -hmm. those years. My husband can relate to all of that. He went to a CBC St Kilda, and uh, he talks – very fondly, I must say, of those times. So yeah, you've got a lot of people in common with you. When I when I wrote the memoir and I and I went through some of the descriptive of what it was like, uh, and I wasn't I wasn't whinging about it. I mean, I had uh, I had more more than not, I had quite a, a happy time through school, but that was in the playground rather than the classroom. Mm. Uh, but in the and I have wondered since uh, what impact it had on me to have had nine years straight of. Uh, of going through where not there were not many weeks when I would have escaped the strap, mm. um, and I wasn't alone in that. But uh, but I think the frequency and the intensity of it, and the kind of the constant war that I was in with the brothers, um, must have had an impact. That uh, there must have been some negative aspects. And I know, I know, I arrived in my adult life with a bit of a streak of anger in me. That's uh, mm. that may have been part of that. Mm. I mean, I probably deserved. Look, nobody deserves to be belted. 
uh, I certainly would have deserved censure and I'm sure a lot of brothers would have got back to the monastery in their teeth. But but uh, anyway, so that's history. Yeah, yeah. Kerry, I, I, I know that, you know, Tom Keneally has written about the Irish in Australia and there's a wonderful uh, trailblazing book by Father Ed Campion about the rock choppers the Irish yeah. in Australia. Were you aware of that kind of, you know, it seems such a long way, long time ago that that kind of sectarianism existed between Protestants and Catholics, between the English and the Irish and Scottish. Were you aware of that as a kid? Uh, look, at a, at a very base level, I was, Lex, because we really did walk one side of the street mm. to the kids who were going off to uh, the Scots College in Warwick, for instance, and I can remember the old, Proddy, Proddy's go to hell. What was it? And Catholic, Catholic. Yeah, there was something about yeah. frogs and logs, yeah. <laughs> and occasionally a stone. Occasionally a stone was thrown, but uh, but and and the the, kind of, the 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 sense I had of of my Irish uh, heritage really came from my grandfather uh, on the O'Brien side, who a uh, wonderful, gentle old man who um, told endless. You know, I mean, I, I said in the book he wore his. He wore his Irishness across every inch of his face, mm. um, and uh, and his great boast was that he could go for twenty four hours uh, telling jokes without uh, having to repeat himself. And I'm, I'd half believe him. Um, <laughs> and most of them were Irish jokes, mm. but um, occasionally there'd be a bit of history thrown in. But it wasn't until I grew up uh, and began to read uh, either through fiction and then ultimately through history books uh, and learnt about Irish history and. Uh, and it's a it's a vicious and horrible story of colonisation by the English in Ireland and and the the kind of veiled attempt at genocide really through the famine years. And you know the Irish was uh, when when some of those Irish came to Australia and I had I had Irish who Irish ancestors who came as convicts and I had the O'Briens came as free settlers in 1850, but undoubtedly as refugees from the famine. Mm. And uh, and I'm not saying this was true in, in, in the case of Charles O'Brien, my first ancestor to arrive here, Australia uh, O'Brien ancestor. There were many stories of Irish who, having been harsh victims or victims of harsh racism in their home country, they came to Australia and had quite racist attitudes uh, to mm. Indigenous Australians. You know, it's one of those awful ironies of... Uh, of human nature, really. Yeah, well, same the same with the Greeks. Oh, I, th- I think it's I think it's in us all. You know, that's the yeah. truth of it. We like to focus on the good that's in us, obviously, but mm. of course, um, in different circumstances, we could be different kinds of people. It's, um, mm. We've all got the capacity for a dark side. I didn't fully understand the extent of it until I studied some nineteenth-century Australian melodramas, for instance, and it. And there's a pattern mm. about it. Um, and the Irish, there are Irish characters in there and they're always the comic relief. They're always the butt of the jokes. And I didn't realise mm. that that mm. sentiment existed from colonial days. Uh, I mean, it makes sense mm. to me now as a, in retrospect. Pre, pre-colonial. I mean, um, if you look, at, you look at some of the English cartoons depicting the Irish back in the in the uh, early to mid nineteenth century, they were depicted as Neanderthals, mm. and they was they was treated as scum. Mm. You know, they were shiftless, uh, they were useless, mm. uh, and these these things were written up written up as fact. I mean, uh, there are very close parallels in the way the English treated the Irish for centuries, uh, and the way um, most settlers when they arrived in Australia viewed Indigenous Australians. I'm prepared for the fact that every election I can remember, 
There will be anti-Asian sentiment, for instance, will be spruiked. There'll be anti-refugee mm. sentiment spruiked. Mm. And I just wonder when, Kerry, when do you think we will be mature enough to break that pattern? Oh, look, I think Australia, to me, is an enduring mystery and um, we promise so much at times and then we disappoint ourselves mm. and each other. Uh, I, look, I, I think the human, you know, to me, just about the only thing that hasn't changed through the course of of human history is human nature itself. Mm. And, um, I, I mean, I regard racism as the, the single greatest evil, mm. uh, but uh, because it is so fundamental mm. uh, and, and, and is the root of so many uh, of the worst moments in history. And it is there um, to be exploited by those who would rule through the vision. Uh, Patricia, I, you know, so it will always be with us, but, mm. but I, I think what you can hope for is that, that is that through education, um, through our attempts to, and, and education never stops, mm. you know, it never stops. And, and my eyes, my eyes continue to be opened even at this age. And, uh, and there, there are wonderful moments, uh, and, and, and some truly genuinely inspirational mm. moments and just watching, mm. uh, I mean, I live in the Northern Rivers and just watching how, uh, people in the community, moved so quickly to fill the void left by government and took on the role of government in saving lives that lives were saved that would otherwise have been lost if that's small. Well, they did it all themselves. I mean, we watched it on TV and before other help came, the locals, the community was doing it all themselves. It was so wonderful. And uh, that's the best of us, isn't Mm. it, on display, really? Um, but we forget, no, we yeah. forget. We forget our history too easily. I think that's right. There are other bests on display too. I have a a relative who uh, recently passed away, very old, lived till an old age, and in previous visits to him in a very quite an isolated town in Victoria, he was very quick to tell me about those refos, you know, the refugees and you know the Asians and all yeah. of them and. And it was really hard for me to say too much because he was so much older than I and I wanted to respect him and not cause him grief <laughs> by my outspokenness. Yeah. But on the very last time I saw him, he was thrilled to tell me and I was thrilled to hear him. I cried that in in the bigger town nearby, they were looking for people to work in factories, canneries. The nearby town was Shepparton, by the way. And mm-hmm. um, he was thrilled to tell me that We've got uh, we've got Muslims here now, and I said, "Oh, that's good." He said, "It is good, Patricia." He said, "And the women are terrific, and they cook, and they work hard, and and they love people, and the men, oh, they're good workers, and you know, their little kids play cricket, and they like Vegemite sandwiches." <laughs> and honestly, it was heaven. You know, it was music to my ears. So, yeah. evidence based goodness still exists. Fear and ignorance, you know, fear and ignorance. Uh- uh, uh, the things that drag us down much more often than not. And, and again, those people who would exploit that. But, um, I've seen so many illustrations of people whose uh, fear and ignorance go like a veil being lifted off their, ah, off their face. It's beautiful, isn't when it? When they actually meet yeah. <laughs> uh, a refugee family who mm. have fled, uh, from Iraq or Iran and depressive conditions there or from parts of Africa. Mm. Uh, or, or a, a homophobic person or a person who has a prejudice against gay people mm. and then meets somebody 
and you know has one move in next door, or that they discover that their own child That's right. uh, is gay, and suddenly yeah. their whole attitude changes. My greatest disappointment, really, in these times, is the failure of leadership. That uh, that there's a, there is a goodness in. Australians mm. just wanting to be tapped. There is a sense of we, we do want to feel better about ourselves. We want to feel more complete about mm. ourselves. We want to be a part mm. of the better side of human history. But I and 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 we have to take some responsibility mm. ourselves for the leaders we have. Mm. I know, but uh, but it's just a terrible failure of leadership that is, confronts us all the time these days. And that, that's a whole other story. Yeah, let's hope they're getting the message. Apropos of what's been happening in the Northern Rivers and, as I said, community out there doing, you know, can-do stuff. They've been wonderful. But culturally, I mean, growing up, it wouldn't have been people always helped themselves, but the cultural experiences of, of it wouldn't be many of us that had refugees in the suburb near us or what were your cultural experiences growing up? Well, mainly, I guess, <laughs> with get to, getting back to that word, word, word normal. Yeah. Did you go to the movies and did you like rock and roll? Did you do all oh, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, we, we used to go to the Saturday uh, matinees at the local cinema and sit mm. in the canvas seats. I don't remember rolling Jaffers down the aisle, but oh. I can certainly remember the days of – so mm. we're, we're talking really the um, – uh, the early to mid fifties. Yeah, fifties and sixties. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But you remember, and I was just tiny at the time. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, Tom Mix and uh, and you know the Lone Ranger and all that stuff. Um, but there were, you know, I, I I can remember little shards of another side of life. Then I, it it, uh, it wasn't all beer, and and I can remember. Um, as a Catholic kid, having been told that uh, that if you if you left a Catholic marriage, then you were destined for hell, <laughs> and uh, you know you were excommunicated from the church. Oh, and, and I can remember there was a street, the, the the corner of the street that I would pass on the way to the shops. Uh, I, probably my parents, someone had told me that the man who lived there. Uh, was living in sin because he had uh, he'd left his Catholic marriage and was was living with another woman. And I can Ooh. remember I used to sort of wander past and and look at the house. I'm not sure what I was looking for, <laughs> what distinguishing features I was looking for, <laughs> but musing about what that actually meant. And and there was another there was a, a house in our street mm. uh, where the, the there was this young guy. He must have been young. I, I'm guessing now, maybe in his thirties. And um, and then. Suddenly he wasn't there for quite a while, and when he came back, he was a very different person. And it was only after I'd grown up, and he used to sort of, he'd, he'd have his little bag, and he'd, he, he continued, he picked up his old routine where he'd walk to the bus stop, get on the bus, go into town, um, and he'd just sit there, um, and didn't communicate with anyone anymore. And it was only many years later when I remembered this, this guy and, and asked one of my parents about it, and they explained to me, that he'd been diagnosed with a mental illness mm. and been sent off to have a frontal lobotomy. Oh dear! Wow. Yeah. Wow. So basically, he'd had his mm. um, yeah he'd had his frontal mm. lobes taken out mm. uh, in an operation and and content, but nobody spoke to him from then on. He became mm. a stranger to everyone. Mm. You know? mm. I suspect as much as anything that was like it was just again it was ignorance. You know, people. Absolutely. People didn't know how to treat mental illness. There was an automatic stigma about it. What I want to talk about is 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 media and and 
and ignorance. And it seems to me there's no excuse to be ignorant, the, ignorant these days. You know, you talked about the, the Sunday afternoon movies and stuff where we'd see a newsreel. And that's how we got our news, you know, on a weekly basis. Maybe we'd get some BBC news, something. But now the proliferation of media and the technological revolution, there's no... Information is so immediate and so accessible, but so is fake news, so is disinformation. As a journalist, that must be frustrating, but how do you distinguish? How do you get people to actually engage with facts? Well, look, again, it comes back to how you grew up. I mean, curiosity, I think, is innate in us. You kind of, you, 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 from, your first, from your first conscious moments, your, your capacity to speak uh, and you're looking around as a very small infant, you're starting to ask questions. And uh, you ask so many questions when you're a child that you drive your parents nuts. Mm. I think these days we've got a school system that is so capped and so divided into its different box as a kind of box ticking exercise, uh, which, which I think, I, I suspect, has a tendency to limit a kid's imagination and, and, uh, and, so everything is directed in, in, in terms of the curriculum and, uh, and, but it's not the curriculum itself. I suspect it's how teachers are forced to teach it in these boxes. Mm-hmm. There may be teachers will say to me, well, that's crap, Gary. You don't know what you're talking about. But my, 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 um, uh, anecdotal evidence is quite, quite strong on that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I heard a number of teachers complain about it. If you, if you've lost your curiosity by the time you've grown up, Lex, and particularly if you're not terribly literate, um, and depending on how interested your own parents have been enough to explain the news mm. and give the news context. News is indiscriminate in the way it comes to us. It's, and it's particularly yeah. indiscriminate now in, with what you're describing. And, and the worst of the, the, of what lies behind the fake news of today is that it is manipulated. Mm. The fake news that we are seeing mostly is manipulated and, uh, if you remember Steve um, Bannon, the the, uh, the guy, he, he was uh, Trump's uh, essentially his chief advisor for a couple of years, and in 2018, uh, he he basically boasted that the the part of the strategy, the Trump strategy, and the strategy of of changing the world into to a world that they preferred was what he called fl- was flooding the zone with shit. Yeah. So you create the line. And then you flood it across the net and then you create another lie and you send that out there and you have this whole, you have a wave of lies hitting the internet and, and it swamps the capacity of conventional news to expose it, to lift the lie out, open it up to the public gaze and expose it for what it is and then look behind it to see where it's coming from. And a lot of that is hidden. Uh, and, and this is happening at the time, at, at, at a time of real vulnerability with the news because, uh, because journalists are struggling. The traditional commercial models of media have collapsed, all but collapsed. And, and so the media are trying to, to, to models that will keep them alive commercially. Uh, and of course, public broadcasters and in particular in the country more than ever under pressure. Absolutely. You've described so well what's happening in our lives every day with the news cycle. It's it's really really scary. So come on, let's everybody be curious. (laughs) 
curious, don't stifle our creativity. It's easy times for kids to be growing up in. That's right. Yeah, very difficult. Oh, gosh. Very yeah. different to mine and probably yours. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Kerry, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank uh, you know I, I miss you on our screens as regularly as you used to be, but I'm delighted when I see you pop up from time to time. Just as I'm delighted today that you've uh, graced us with your presence and given us some time and some reminiscing. Um, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks. Kerry. Thank you so much, and we do miss you. <laughs> Thanks, Kerry, and I hope we have the opportunity to talk again soon. Thank you both. Bye. Thank you, Kerry. Cheers. Bye. And now it's time for Money Extra, where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. Hi, I'm Mark Bynum, Money and Retirement Coach from The Money Sandwich, talking to you today about the downsides of superannuation benefit on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. So for those looking for a sea change, or maybe even just looking for a smaller home if appropriate, the government has provided an excellent one-off opportunity to top up your superannuation balance by making a downsizer contribution. So what is this downsizing contribution? It is simply when you sell your own home, as long as you've owned it for at least 10 years and is in Australia, you have the ability to make a one-off contribution of 300000 per person or 600000 if a couple. Also, as of the 1st of June 2022, the government even improved this benefit by lowering the age down from 65 to age 60 to make this contribution. It has proved really popular so far, with over 22,000 Australians since 2018 making a downsizer contribution to their superannuation fund. So what are some of the benefits? Firstly, for those retirees who have not had the time or the opportunity to build sufficient funds for a comfortable retirement yet, they can use this one-off option to add to their super balance. Second, there is no need to buy a new home once you sell your home for this benefit to apply. Thirdly, you don't have to be working to make this contribution. And finally, this one-off contribution does not count against standard non-concessional or concessional contribution caps for future contributions. While there are no real negatives, there are a couple of small issues you need to be aware of and maybe get advice on. This contribution firstly, like other superannuation benefits, does count towards the age, pension, assets and income assessment test, as well as aged care eligibility, as you would be moving money out of an exempt asset, which is your family home, into superannuation. Also, you can't do this again if you sell your new home a few years later. It is a one-off deal. Lastly, if you have a 90-day time limit from receiving this proceeds to make your contribution to superannuation. Thanks for listening and bye for now. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. And today we're stepping out in the beautiful Hutter Valley of New South Wales to meet Cheryl Small, volunteer radio presenter with 2CHR 96.5 FM. The station broadcasts to the famous wine-producing country, as well as coal mining and agricultural areas, Cessnock, Maitland and historic Wollombi. Cheryl presents a weekly three-hour program called Community Profile. Cheryl, welcome to the program. What's your profile? As I said, you're probably in um, you know, the sheet that I put forward. But um, I love radio um, because of uh, growing up with uh, radio with being read by grandparents instead of uh, uh, all my friends had young parents and I had these oldies. But uh, the Hunter Valley is absolutely wonderful. This station, they're just amazing. They're all volunteers, been going 20 years. Um, we reach out to a very big community. I can't tell you how many listeners, but um, the the um, 
signal comes from Mount View, which is a beautiful part of uh, the Hunter Valley. Uh, did move up to the Hunter Valley from uh, Central Coast, and I lived out at a place called Conjury Way and built a brand new house out there. And uh, I found it was always a dream. I designed and built the house, and it was on 50 acres, but I did find for myself personally, coming from Surrey Hills in the first place, that um, I found a little bit isolated as much as I absolutely love the hunter and, and the trees, the bush, the kangaroos, the wine, the wineries. There's so much to do, um, but I moved to another area closer in. So Bellbird Heights, which is about 12 minutes to for Colburn, which is probably one of the most popular I think it's the most popular visited uh, destination in New South Wales as far as tourism. Oh, really? Yes, it is. It's a beautiful part of the world. Do you like a little white or a little red wine? Oh, look, like, there's 165 wineries, so, you know, I've only got through about less than a third, I can assure you. Um, wow. But, yes, it is a delight. It is a delight. And the restaurants are superb, so, you know, it's nothing to just drive over and to go to one of those uh, also out at Broke, a lot of people do not know about poor little Broke out there. It's, uh, it's about uh, maybe 20 minutes from Colburn, but uh, my daughter just bought there in February, and the only reason I say it is that if you've seen the news, it does come under a national, as a New South Wales a disaster because of the flooding. Oh, of course. Yeah, she bought in February this year, and it's sad. You know, I was out there two days ago cleaning down furniture that's muddy and so forth. It's not much fun, but... The RFS, the SES, the Army, Bulga Mines, not Wines, um, all these people out there, I've never seen anything in this ever in my entire 74 years um, of life that pull together and just help each other. So, um, you know, I'm glad that she's there. I don't know whether she'll stay. <laughs> Did you pop over and lend a hand? I went, yes, I was there. I was there yesterday. Uh, oh, sorry, the day before I was at the station yesterday. So, right, um, yeah, the day before. And, um, yeah, my grandson came up and people have been helping. But the, the services, though, that the volunteers, the SES and the RFS and all those in the Army, the Army pulled all the carpet up for her, you know, so... I heard just mm. um, these cadets, they're only 18-year-old cadets, okay? So, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I said they'd rather, they told us they'd rather be out there than doing their training, I think, so. Huh. <laughs> Disaster can bring out the very best in people, can't it? The Community Profile Program that is your yeah. program, tell us about it, Cheryl. Uh, well, what it is is uh, obviously I read community announcements, so we're non-for-profit organisations, of course, so... Uh, lots of things come through, maybe something at the library, um, you know, historical talks uh, or walks or, uh, you know, fates that people advertise through maybe churches or uh, museum outlets, anything that comes in. And uh, media from government, so ministers, uh, you know, with the Telstra just recently, I read one yesterday that, uh, thank goodness, I can honestly say that, even on air, so um, Telstra's put on 2,000 employees, so... All the calls that we've been previously making to get help that are coming from overseas. Um, and and you know, I don't mean to cast aspersions uh, on people, but sometimes it was hard for them to understand perhaps what we're saying. And so now they're operating um, from home. They could be in your street or they could be, uh, mm. which is good. So all these are, which is I think is a good thing. And so that was just one example, though. So uh, the others are obviously. Um, Oh, historic places, places of interest at Maitland, it's a very uh, 
beautiful town full of uh, fabulous architecture, and there's a lot going on over there. There's a repertory theatre. Um, it says not uh, says not performing arts. So we don't always advertise that unless they pay. Naturally, so <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Because as I said, our um, it is all voluntary, all the presenters, and uh, we're short of presenters, short of office staff. The station manager had a heart attack. He doesn't mind me saying. Um, so, um, what did you do to him? What did you What did you do to him? <laughs> yeah, what did you do? I know. <laughs> I know. I tell you. I think that poor man. You know, I, I play Neil Diamond for him today because that's one of his favourite. Oh, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and yours, um, Patty. I might say. I actually didn't pay. Um, a blonde-headed, stompy, wompy boy, not yesterday, but last Wednesday, the Wednesday before oh. I did Thank you very much, Cheryl. So, Cheryl, what about the radio station itself? What other kinds of programs does it have? Does it have rock and roll, reggae, country and western, oh, they do gardening? All the, yeah, all the – no garden. No, they don't have any gardening. Um, no gardening. They don't, do, they don't do real estate. They should do it because, you know, I'm still a licensed real estate agent, but – I did do that on previous stations I worked down on the Central Coast, and I had a great uh, radio uh, program, rather, on the Saturday morning about real estate. And, uh-huh. uh, well, I thought it was great. I don't know about the rest of the people, but um, it just kept people up to date with uh, do's and don'ts, presenting a home, and, and some tendency. All fact, though, all from the acts. So I love it. Yes. I actually like reading acts, believe it or not. So, <laughs> um, but um, and then I was at Rima, uh, the Christian radio station on the Central Coast for two years. I was the director, and um, I had a program there as well. But this one, because each presenter were all coming from different walks of life, so you might get some of it. There's a, a lovely young man. He plays like music from the Hollywood era, and he's about twenty-four. You know, oh really. He looks like Clark Kent, you know, so. Yeah. And, um, but you see, the station managers took him in about six years ago, and, you know, I don't mind saying he was, he had a few health issues, and so now it's just, he's blossomed because he's, he just loves this Hollywood era. So I play, uh, community profile is probably, apart from the announcements, it's boring, as you know, with people just reading, reading. So um, I can play anything I like. And uh, growing up with grandparents, I actually like crooners, the 50s, even some 40s, believe it or not, 40s, 50s, certainly 60s, rock and roll. Don't do rock and roll on a Wednesday morning, but if I get caught. Oh, no, no. No, a bit too early for them. So <laughs> no, <we're>, <laughs> Wednesday, <laughs> you can't play rock and roll on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's right. So, um, But I like lifetime, but that's if somebody's short of shit. You know, they'll, you know, three to six. Uh, so well, maybe they maybe they could uh, download our program. Maybe they could download Baby Boomer's Guide. That's a very good program. Well, I did say that to the station manager's wife. She came in yesterday and been yeah. across the counter, you know, the studio assistant, and you know, yeah. how's it going, blah blah blah. And I mentioned her because she's the one that asked me. She came in last the week before. Oh, and she you know. asked me. is she the boss? I, I don't want to. I don't want to give him another heart attack or anything. But um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> We, this program could it's, stop him from having another heart attack. It's heart attack proof, this show. Oh, he's a delightful man. He's got a great sense of humour. Yeah, so they're a nice pair. They really are. They're, they're oh, really good. They're diligent. They're so diligent and dedicated to radio. Well, we'd love to be a part of your radio station, and maybe you okay. could take us for you could take us for a drive in one of your cars that you're passionate about. 
Can I ask you a question, Nick? Yeah, sure. Okay, so do you have any Greek cafes in Katoomba with Theo Thoulos? Your father? Uh, I, I remember in Wagga Wagga there was a Sulus family, Sulos family. Oh, okay. And uh, my father was friends friends with Charlie Sulos and Nick Sulos, and but I, you know, they lost touch with those years ago. But um, oh, yeah, it's right. a familiar name. From yeah, uh, we were yeah. in the Riverina and around Wagga Wagga. Oh, when okay. I was growing up. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, but I think the Sulos is a blue mountain. He's passed away now, but he's in his nineties. He's done. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, don't know. Anyway, Cheryl, it's great talking to you. Next time well, you. I'm in the heart of Valley, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop in and um, in. come on the show yeah, and. Uh, I'll come and I'll interview you. I do interviews as well, by the way. I forgot to say that. I don't know. Of course you do. Yeah, I do you do everything. People coming. No, I don't do everything. I don't do everything. Oh. I'm, I'm still learning. Don't you worry. So oh, okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, please do because I'm always looking for someone to interview and uh, that'd be great. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Cheryl. Thanks, it's Cheryl. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Patty. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Cheryl Small there from 2CHR in the Hunter Valley, 96.5 FM. And that concludes another episode of Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. Patricia, it's been an epic day and more to come next week, for instance. We're talking Vietnam veterans with uh, Max Ball. I always look forward to Vietnam Veterans Day, which is on the 18th of August. However, our program will be on the 16th of August and Max Ball, who's, well, all Vietnam veterans are experts and they're all lovely, but uh, Max Ball will talk about the legacy of the Vietnam War. So that'll be something worth listening to well and truly. And actress Nolene Brown will take us on a tour of uh, Nostalgia Town. (laughs) Isn't she lovely? And then we'll go stepping out with Michael Day from 3MDR. All of that on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. See you then. Bye. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation, which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A dot org.au. And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus, you can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomers Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomers Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia, Little Paddy Amphlet, and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get Get connected connected and stay stay connected. connected.